If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. also important to get the feeling of what it was like in the early days to go out in these helicopters in a gale to a platform in the middle of nowhere in the North Sea with the winds blowing, the waves crashing on the legs of this thing, and to learn a rough, tough, rather dangerous business from scratch. That was James Nocherty on the history of Britain's oil industry. The Blitz was this time of misrule, this time of extremes that, 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 that you know, it was very difficult after the water to sort of cram back into the bottle. And that was Joshua Levine talking about the Blitz. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of September 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Monday, the 7th of September, a new series begins on BBC Radio 4 entitled Oil, A Crude History of Britain. It tells a story of the North Sea oil boom on the 40th anniversary of the first barrel of oil being drawn from the sea. The series is presented by James Nocherty, who himself grew up in a part of Scotland that was strongly affected by the arrival of oil. I visited James in New Broadcasting House recently to find out more about this fascinating story. Going back to the beginning of the story, Jim, how was North Sea oil first discovered? Well, it's a very interesting history because there was oil in the North Sea going away back. I mean, there was funny extraction going on in the 19th century. But... In the mid-60s, the government decided to allow some exploration in what we now call the North Sea, but it stretches way beyond Shetland and so on. There had been things going on in the Norwegian sector. And over the next 10 years, some of the big oil companies began to discover the reserves that we subsequently came to know very well. And in 1974-75, the great oil boom began. So we are now 40 years after it all started. But if you talk to people in Aberdeen, they often talk about it being 50 years because it was in 1964-65 that those exploration licences began and very quietly, under the radar, without anybody noticing, I mean, I was living there at the time, uh, they began to look for oil, serious oil. The big moment came in the last month of 1975 when the Queen turned on the tap from the 40s field, and it really began to flow. You saw the gush. There had been oil earlier from the Argyle field, which was the first one uh, that produced a barrel of oil, and Tony Benn held up the flask. He was energy secretary in the Labour government of the day. And that was the beginning. I have an interesting 
perspective on this because as a boy growing up in rural Aberdeenshire in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, I'd been a student in Aberdeen until 1973. I went away for a year to America to do university work, came back, and from dear old sleepy Aberdeen, which was still a substantial city but dominated by its farming and fishing hinterland, I came back to discover in 1974 a city that was being transformed, that had the biggest heliport in Europe at the airport, where previously it had been a sort of shack in the middle of a field. And American accents were beginning to be heard. And over the next couple of years, when I was working as a reporter on the local paper in Aberdeen, you really saw a place transformed, not just industrially, in the sense that all kinds of uh, companies began to move in to make equipment to service the platforms that were beginning to be built to go out into the North Sea, but culturally transformed as well. So Americans were coming to live. You had an American country club out on the western outskirts of the city where people had barbecues and things that were hitherto unknown in Aberdeen, largely because of the weather. And I feel very aware of how deep that change was. And of course, it was accompanied at the time by great political upheavals. So it's a story about exploration, adventure, engineering expertise, determination and brilliance in many cases. Rough, tough American businesses coming in and fighting it out as if it was a gold rush. And great questions about politics, about how governments manage the process of exploration and how they handle the profits that it produces. And all these elements come together in this story, um, A Crude History of Britain, which will take the story really from the mid-70s to the present day. I suppose that the, um, the historical context is quite interesting at that period because you've just had the Yom Kippur War, which has had a massive impact on global oil supplies and oil prices. Did, did that feed into the, how the British oil was developed? It did, and in a very particular way, because Sheikh Imani, who was the great Saudi oil minister, was portrayed, and often in a demonic way, as the man who could sort of turn on the tap or turn it off again and hold the West to ransom, which was always the cry. So, of course, the idea that there might be enough oil, although, of course, no one had the faintest idea how to calculate uh, what the oil supply was, how long it would last. You picked up one paper and it said two years, somebody else would say 40, and so lay people didn't have a clue. But we knew there was oil there. The whole country knew there was oil there. It was beginning to happen. The government of the day said, this is a, a godsend. Now, politically, it had an effect in a very peculiar way in Scotland, because in the first of the two elections in 1974, the one that uh, Ted Heath called when his Conservative government was falling apart because of the miners' strike, on the slogan, who governs Britain, uh, the answer came back, not you, mate. Um, the argument was, of course, between the unions and the government. Um, Wilson came in with a wafer-slim majority, a Labour government re-elected as Prime Minister, then had a second election in October to get a proper majority. He got a very, very slim one, but anyway, it was enough to keep him going. In those two elections, the Scottish nationalists, who had previously been a fringe group, really almost cranky in terms of Scottish politics, in one seat in the Hamilton by-election in 1967, one in the Western Isles in 1970. But that was it. In the first election, 
in February 74, they got seven seats in the second election in October, they got 11. And their campaign consisted of two themes. One was that the Heath terms of accession to the common market, as it then was, had been unfair on farmers and fishermen. So they got a lot of rural votes, a sort of anti-Tory vote from people who had previously voted Tory. But the second element, which is much more relevant for the purposes of this conversation, was the slogan, it's Scotland's oil. And the argument was that for the first time, it was possible for serious people, so the argument went, to contemplate Scotland as a country that could stand at its own two feet because there was oil under that sea. And if you drew the line in the right place, most of it was in Scottish waters. Now, of course, legally, that was an irrelevance because there were no Scottish waters, there were UK waters. But politically, it gave that whole argument an edge. And you could say, because of what's subsequently happened, because those 11 MPs elected in October 74 were able to turn the screw on the Labour government, and after Wilson's resignation in 1976, when Jim Callaghan became Prime Minister, forced that government to put through devolution legislation, which failed in a referendum in 1979, and indeed was the thing that brought down the Labour government and brought Sir Thatcher to power in the election of May 1979. That, that whole episode based on the slogan, It Scotland's Oil, was the beginning of the nationalist movement in the late 20th century that has led to an SNP government, a fully devolved Scottish Parliament, and, um, you know, 56 out of 59 Scottish MPs at Westminster being nationalists. That whole story is inseparable from what we're talking about in the upheaval of the mid-70s. It was an economic, industrial upheaval, and as a consequence, it was a political upheaval, the consequences of which we're still seeing today. And as you said, obviously at the time it was, well, in fact, it still is, UK waters. So what kind of benefit did the UK government get out of this oil? I mean, they must have made a lot of money out of it. Well, we talked to Dennis Healy, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. Wilson made him Chancellor in uh, February 1974. He'd been Defence Secretary in the previous Labour government, 64 to 70. And Healy said to us, quite bluntly, oil kept us going. Now, he didn't get the benefits in hard cash instantly, because that's not the way it works. But the prospect of long-term wealth coming out of the seabed at a moment when, you know, inflation was running in the mid-20s in 1974. The country was in uh, industrial turmoil uh, the miners' strike, the power workers' strike, and so on. It was a time of deep gloom about the prospects. The crisis with the IMF having to be called in or potentially having to be called in in 1976 was still two years away. But the country was in a very, very febrile position, and so everybody believed economically weak. And therefore, the prospect of oil revenues in the future was absolutely vital. And Dennis Healy said to us, it kept us going. And I think he was right. And when you look back at the arguments about whether there should have been an oil fund, whether the money should have been put aside, whether there should have been more government intervention to say, let's store this benefit up for the future, as the Norwegians famously have done. At the time, the pressing need was simply to stimulate the economy, get it going. And oil was a godsend. I think Labour politicians of the time would say that the real benefits flowed to the Thatcher government, came in five years later, 
because then the revenues were really beginning to mount up. The tax take for the Treasury was huge. But in the early days, apart from anything else, it was huge industrial activity. You know, there were firms, and the most famous example is the Wood Group in Aberdeen, as it now is. It was a kind of fishing supply, sort of Chandler's business. Uh, they owned a few trawlers, I think, as well, basically involved in fishing. And the family realised that there was an opportunity here. It is now a multi-billion pound company, which is, you know, apart from anything else, fracking right across Canada, got business interests around the world. And that was a small family firm that came out of Aberdeen in the mid-70s. And that is a spectacular example of something that happened right down the line. The economy of that part of Scotland, which had been dominated by farming and fishing, was absolutely transformed, not without difficulty for people who weren't in the oil industry. But the effects of that flowed right through the British economy. So I think that if you talk to people at the time, you would find them very, very reluctant to say anything other than oil was the saviour. There's a whole bigger argument, of course, about whether the Labour government's plans to have a British National Oil Corporation, i.e. a state oil company, which was subsequently abolished by the Thatcher government, was a good idea or not. That's a different argument. But the fact is we needed it and it came at the right moment. And then later on, did once, say, the British economy had been recovering, was there any attempt to kind of save up this money making oil fund, or did it just keep going to fund government expenditure? I think the critics have the best of this argument when they say no, that it was simply used uh, as the revenue that it was. I mean, the tax take was fantastic. And, you know, there's a big argument that not enough infrastructure investment was done, not enough investment. But this is an argument that is of course, fiercely contested. And in the series, we'll hear from Nigel Lawson, who was an energy secretary under Margaret Thatcher before he became chancellor. And of course, uh, his argument is that, of course, there had to be some management of the process, but effectively, as much laissez-faire as you could manage in the North Sea would produce the greatest benefits for the economy. The other argument was that if government had been more... um, uh, frugal in some ways and certainly more interventionist in its stance then there might have been longer term benefits that is the political argument that goes on what we do know is the history and the history is quite frankly that we got more out of the north sea than anyone in 1974 had expected the length of it you know they're now having to renew rebuild platforms which were built for 25 years and really I suspect that very few people could have put their hands on their hearts, even in the late 70s, and said that we'd be sitting here in 2015 saying that some of these fields have 30, 40 years life left in them. But that's the truth. The other side of it, which we're not dealing with in this programme, or this series of programmes, of course, is gas, which is often not talked about. Um, But, you know, was a huge uh, technical challenge, which was conquered. The other thing... I just want to mention in this context is that it's a strange industry because if you talk about energy, people think simply about what it costs to turn on a switch at night or heat your bath water. And it's a very dry subject. The other aspect of it is, of course, you can't see where the electricity comes from. It's invisible. It's there. You might occasionally see a hydroelectric dam and say, oh, that's interesting. But oil is something that comes from places that are out of sight. This whole industry exists over the horizon. It's out of view. 
And yet, if you see rigs, if you fly over rigs, or see them when they're being repaired near the shoreline, or look at the kinds of bits of equipment that they're taking out to put down onto the seabed, you realise that it's a, an extraordinarily exciting, dangerous, fantastically expensive and risky business. It's really got an amazing amount of drama tied up in it. And yet, you know, the dry business of what does a barrel of Brent crude cost, which is the measure that is used to sort of um, calibrate the oil price around the world from the Brent field in the North Sea, um, it just sounds very dry. And what I think we're going to try to do in this series is tell a little bit of the story of the Klondike years in the 70s when Aberdeen in the Northeast became this kind of gambling den for oil companies where they all arrived and, you know, went for it, took their luck when the licences were given out and went, and sometimes they lost and sometimes they won. There was a great wheel of fortune going on. And in those days, it was a swashbuckling atmosphere. Later, you hear people in Aberdeen say the accountants took over, the firms are now much more cautious. Um, it's all about just getting the oil out, not much more exploration. In the early days, it was like the gold rush. And that's what I think remains in the memory from those years. How big of a logistical engineering challenge was it to extract all this oil? Because, I mean, Britain didn't really have that experience before, certainly close to the country. Well, it was huge. And we talked to somebody in Aberdeen who said, look, it's worth remembering that in the Gulf of Mexico, the Americans really only started big oil drilling in the late seven, in the late forties, early fifties, of course they've been drilling onshore in Texas and elsewhere much before that. But the problems of marine exploration was a new science. And if you're dealing with waters in the North Sea, where east of Shetland you get the most appalling storms, there are great depths. Of course, there was expertise rather earlier on the Norwegian sector. But the engineering challenges of getting these wells sunk and operating platforms, when they say the supply ships, you know, people saying they're on them and they, they somersault, you can see a supply ship going up and it's going up so far its propeller comes out of the water. And that kind of thing, that is just taken for granted. There were lots of minor accidents. There was the awful disaster in Piper Alpha, of course, much later on. But, you know, helicopters have been falling out of the air in the northeast of Scotland for the last 40 years, surprisingly regularly, helicopters ditching in the sea. It's a very, very dangerous business. But the people who understand these things, and inevitably it's a very technical business, say that the engineering that was involved to do what needed to be done to get the riches out of the seabed was extraordinary. And there's fantastic expertise being built up in a lot of these supply companies in Aberdeen and elsewhere. I mean, actually right across the UK, but particularly in the Aberdeen area, where they're now selling their expertise and their particular skill uh, either in design or engineering or analysis to, you know, oil companies working off West Africa to working in the Gulf and, and around the world. As part of the series, have you spoken to any actual oil rig workers or tried to get an insight into their experience? We haven't done that yet. This is all coming down the line, but we will. And we'll talk to some of the Americans who came to Aberdeen in the first place. Get on your bike. That's where it's all happening. And um, try to capture some of that atmosphere. I think it's also important to get the feeling of what it was like in the early days to go out in these helicopters in a gale to a platform in the middle of nowhere in the North Sea with the winds blowing, the waves crashing on the legs of this thing. 
and to learn a rough, tough, rather dangerous business from scratch. There's a lot of the guys I remember, you know, friends of mine from school, went to work on oil rigs. They didn't know an oil rig from a combine harvester. Uh, so it was a, you know, it was a huge cultural change. And there were, you know, there were big, rough, tough guys arriving from Texas. And, you know, Red Adair and his people coming to put out fires. I mean, it was a very sort of vigorous, rough time. And Peterhead, you know, sleepy little fishing town north of Aberdeen, was turned in the course of three or four years into a sort of, well, it was like a, a, a kind of gold rush town in California in the 1840s with sort of casinos and women of the night parading along the dock. I mean, they'd always been there, but not in those numbers uh, for rich Americans arriving from Texas. And, you know, hordes of people coming off the rigs with pots of money, two weeks on, two weeks off, spend it in the bars. I mean, it was a very raucous atmosphere. And that's what it was like. It was a sort of fever. You said you had friends yourself that worked on some of these rigs. I mean, what kind of impact did that have on their lives? Because obviously it must, you know, having to be out there for weeks on end. I think it had a huge impact. I think a lot of people did it briefly uh, just to make a lot of money. They were well paid. It was a bit of a problem, though, because if you were running a small business, if you were running a business that depended on having tradesmen, you know, a carpenter's business or a mason or a plumber or something, it was terrible for you in that area because you couldn't compete with the wages that a 19-year-old boy might get from just going and spending a year or two on the rigs where he could pocket um, quite a lot of cash, come back and admittedly spend quite a lot of it and maybe enjoying himself on his two weeks off. But it was a, a great benefit to the economy as a whole, but it did have its downside locally. Uh, I think a lot of small businesses find it very, very difficult to deal with this interloping multinational business that had come into their midst. And of course, there was a sort of political edge to this it was a very famous um, play. It was really a, a musical review called The Cheery at the Stag and the Black Black Oil, which toured Scotland in the early 70s. And it was produced by the 784 Theatre Company. It was a piece of um, propaganda from the left, really, or an argument from the left, uh, of savagely satirical review, which portrayed the oil industries, executives and operators as people who had come in to, to, to rape Scotland of its riches, rather as landowners had done in the 19th century when they cleared the glens of people in order to populate them with sheep because they were more profitable. And this uh, scabrous review, which was very funny and very sharp and very wicked, toured at least twice village halls right round the north of Scotland and was a roaring success. I mean, it was one of the cultural episodes of, I suppose, 1973, I think, off the top of my head. So underneath the arrival of oil and all the excitement and the economic benefits, there was quite an argument about, you know, these people coming in, taking the riches out of the ground or out of the sea and piping them off to places unknown while there are still people living in poverty in Glasgow, whatever it was. So it was a very exciting time. And I think you can see... As I mentioned, the politics of devolution and the politics of nationalism, which, of course, had all sorts of other streams flowing into them. But one of those streams was unquestionably the, the vision of natural God-given riches, so to speak, that were there, but whose full value, so the argument went, wasn't being felt by the people who lived there. So that was another element to it. What kind of environmental impact did this 
did this sort of huge oil exploration have? Huge. I mean, there haven't been many uh, disasters. I mean, there's been nothing like the Exxon Valdez um, episode in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but there was a great argument in Shetland, particularly, about the nature of the buildings that were going to happen. And the Shetland Islands Council famously took a much tougher line with the companies. Some people say they could have been even tougher and would have got away with it. But anyway, they took a much tougher line than the local authorities did in the Aberdeen area, who were frankly so glad to see all this cash coming in that they more or less said, look, get on with it. But in Shetland, they were very specific that there should be one terminal and not three or four. And they took great care to take money back from the companies into the islands to try to keep the infrastructure going and to um, protect the environment. Now, you know, there are all sorts of arguments about whether that was done to a, to a proper extent. But I think anybody looking at the history of it would have to conclude that although it may not have been perfect, and of course there's environmental damage when you build huge structures and float them out to sea and so on, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. And I think that there are very few people who would say that Scotland, northern Scotland and the islands have been irreparably damaged by the oil industry, except to the extent that, of course, there are, there are places that have been turned into industrial sites that weren't industrial sites before. That's always going to happen. But I don't think it's, I don't think the environmental record is as bad as some were predicting at the beginning of it. Just one last question, Jim. Um, we're now 40 years on from when this oil started to be extracted. Um, what do you see as the future for the North Sea oil industry? During the Scottish referendum campaign last year, there was a great deal of argument about the SNP's calculations um, of a potentially independent Scottish economy. And they were based largely on an assumption uh, of the billions of pounds worth of oil that still lay in the North Sea. The SNP were mocked for putting the, the figure on it that they did. The truth is that shortly after the referendum, which of course delivered a no vote by about 10%, um, lo and behold, it became clear that the estimates for what was left in the North Sea were indeed much, much lower than the SNP calculations, the Scottish Government's calculations had been. There's undoubtedly a blip, a dip, whatever you call it. Uh, exploration is slowing down. A lot of companies uh, have been in quite a bit of difficulty in the last 18 months. There's an issue about how, how heavily they will invest in future operations. But the fact is that oil is still flowing out in great quantities and will continue to do so. And there are places that are very hopeful for exploration. And they just had the 28th round of licenses, which, you know, snapped up as they always are issued. So the oil industry is going to be there for a long time. And the truth, as far as I can judge it, if you talk to people who are involved in this, is that they say you can never know. I was reading the other day an article in... Um, the Chicago Tribune of all places in 1977, an article saying the oil in the North Sea is going to run out in two years. Well, here we are in uh, 2015, and no one's talking about it running out. There will still be oil there in 20, 30, maybe 40 years. Not going to be at the level that it was at in the 80s, but it'll still be there. So there's still going to be a huge industry. The real question is how much more exploration there is going to be there may be places which pop up around the world that are cheaper and easier. Who knows what they're going to find in the Falkland Islands? Not that that's going to be cheap or easy, but there are places like that that are being explored at the moment. The focus may go away from the North Sea, but we will still have an oil industry for the rest of our lifetimes. And it will be an industry that can be said 
let's say when 50 years, 75 years have passed since that first battle came out of the Argyle field that absolutely had a profound effect on the British economy. Whether we use the resources well or not so well is an argument for politicians and economists to have. But that it changed our lives in a very profound way is not something that's up for argument. It did. That was James Nocherty. Oil, a crude history of Britain, begins next Monday, the 7th of September, at 8pm on BBC Radio 4. And now we have a short advertisement break. Follow Elizabeth's intelligentsia, John Shakespeare, brother to the playwright William, through the dark underworld of Tudor England, as he unmasks the traitors and conspirators who plot against the Queen. Holy Spy... The top 10 best-selling Tudor thriller from award-winning author Rory Clements is available now. Does for Elizabeth's reign what C.J. Sansom does for Henry VIII's The Sunday Times. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Melvin Bragg, Lloyd Grossman, Susanna Lipscomb and Joanne Fletcher. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. Now, it was 75 years ago this month that the Nazi bombing raids on Britain, known as the Blitz, began. This is a subject that is explored by Joshua Levine in his new book, The Secret History of the Blitz, and in an article that he's written for the September issue of BBC History magazine. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Joshua earlier this week to get the lowdown on one of the most traumatic events of the Second World War home front. 
So what inspired you to write this book, firstly? Well, I'd already written um, one book, um, uh, which covered covered the Blitz, and that was an oral history. And for that, I'd spent a lot of time in the archives of the Imperial War Museum, um, uncovering stories and trying to put them together into a sort of narrative history. And I was very pleased with that, but I... What I really wanted to do was to go deeper. I wanted to really delve into the kinds of stories, the kind of material that nobody had found before. Um, because I'd, I'd got quite annoyed, really, by some of the things that had been written about the, the Blitz. People tended to look at the Blitz in one of two ways. They either saw Blitz spirit as sort of overriding everything else. So, you know, people had pulled together to such a degree that, that, that nothing else was worth considering, or else people reacted against that idea of Blitz spirit and decided that there was so much misbehavior that, was, that, that, that Blitz spirit actually had been a myth. So people were coming at it with their own agendas, with their own preconceptions. And what I wanted to do was to really dig down underneath those stories to find out what in my opinion, had really been going on, how people had really been relating to each other, how people had really been behaving. So I, I spoke to a lot of people. I went into archives that people didn't normally go into. I got things opened up and files opened up in the National Archives. And I tried to find the story underneath the story. Mm. Because it, it is, you know, one of those periods that tends to get told in terms of a narrative. So it's either this or this, as you say exactly. there. Um, how did you go about making it more of a complex view of this period? Well, by by really listening to what people had to say and by really listening to what the archives had to tell me um, and the files had to tell me. And and so, so rather than arriving with a preconception, arriving with my own agenda, uh, I, if, if I did arrive with an agenda, it was really one of openness. It was it was to, 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 to sort of accept that life is complicated, life is nuanced. You know, life is multi-layered, and to try and find out what some of those layers were to give us a, you know, a real picture of the Blitz. When so often that's not what we get. Mm. Something that really comes through in the book is, is some really strong characters, some strong personalities. Are there any for you that stand out particularly? Uh, there are there are so many, in, you know, individuals who who who, who stand out, but you know, so, so many of them are actually standing out because of their relationship to the time. Um, it's you know what, what? What was exciting to me was when you started to see themes, sort of ways of behaviour that, that that related very much to the situation people found themselves in. So, for example, you know people were were were, were living in danger, and people weren't sure whether they would survive, and so they started behaving in extreme ways, extreme ways in all different directions. So not necessarily, you know, people really did pull together. People really did suddenly find themselves with 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 things in common, with shared goals, which they never had before. You know, they were sharing so much. And and so, you know, for example, one one woman who who I spoke to told me a story about being on the uh, on, on a London bus traveling through Westminster late at night. There was she was on the back, she was only 18 and 19 years old, having a, a crafty cigarette at the back. Um and there was only one other person, a man, right at the front of the bus, total stranger. They heard a stick of bombs coming down, and the driver obviously heard it too because he veered off the normal path. And as the bombs were coming down, the man just slowly got up, walked all the way down the bus, sat down next to the woman, and held her hand. Then the bombs exploded elsewhere. The driver got back onto the route. The man got up again, walked back up to where he'd been sitting, sat down, and the two of them never said a word. That, to me was instinctive blitz spirit. That, was, that showed you that when, 
when people were in danger, people really did come together. People really did share something that they hadn't shared before. So that, in a microcosm, is what Blitz Spirit is all about. But then, of course, you know, in these extreme times, people also went to did, did all sorts of other things. They they took risks that they'd never taken before. They they tried ways of behaving that they'd never had before. They questioned the way they'd always lived because suddenly, what did it matter if you if you didn't do what you'd always done before? So in tiny ways, from from women going into pubs on their own to to, to much much larger ways, people breaking laws and, 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 and exploiting each other in ways they'd never done before. So the point of this period was that, that, that people behaved differently, went to extremes in all directions, as did the country. You know, I discovered there was this, there was this um, inshore oil industry in Sherwood Forest. Um, just as the people were making do and mending and doing what they hadn't before, so was the land itself. The country needed oil. It was being sunk as it was as it was uh, arriving on our shores. So they sent people around to try and find oil deposits. They found a, 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 a large oil deposit under Sherwood Forest. Um, they, they started to, to, to drill and they started to bring the oil up. They didn't have the the, 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 the machinery that they needed and they didn't have the, the manpower that they needed to drill it. So they sent out to America where they brought back drillers from, from Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, and, and these people came over dressed in denim and cowboy hats, carrying banjos with a cover story at first that they were making a movie. They lived in a monastery with trainee monks. They were given a year of working every day to drill as much oil out of the ground as they could. This oil turned out, incidentally, to be really high grade, higher than anything that was coming out of the Middle East. And so not only did people behave differently – but the country behaved differently. Everything changed. Everything shifted. People's expectations shifted. The way they related to each other shifted. The way the, way the country worked changed. And the genie was very much out of the bottle by the time the Blitz was really underway. And... And so that you know, it was very difficult after the war was over for for the government to 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 cram the genie back into the bottle. Things had changed, expectations had changed, and you know, in, in their behaviour uh, and their relationships, people had changed. In what way did this period represent a time of opportunity for women specifically? Well, I think you know, firstly, men were away. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of men joined the army or, or, or were working um, away from the away from the home. So so women took on roles um, that they'd never taken on before. So working in factories, you know, munitions, all sorts of essential work that gave them. Uh, well, first of all, a stake in society, but also an importance, a self-importance, a belief in their own importance that they that they. You know, hadn't had before, so 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 that was one thing. But also, it gave them it gave them a kind of freedom that they'd never had before. Um, you know, you saw this in, in in sexual freedoms, all sorts of sexual freedoms that people. You know, partly it was because people didn't know if they were going to live, so they tried different things. Um, uh, but 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 partly also, you know, people were away from home. There was there was something that that grew up that, that this idea of the sort of wartime marriage where husbands were away, wives were were, were still at home, men from other areas were were around. So people t t picked up, came together, and actually lived sort of marriages. I mean, they were they were kind of marriages. They were lo they were loyal to each other. They went out together. They did things together. But it was understood that it was only last for the duration of the war. 
Um, and once the war was over, that would end and the, the, the regular marriage would kick back in. And I think that's what Brief Encounter, Nokawa's Brief Encounter is about. It's, a, it's really a sort of message to people at the end of the war that, okay, this strange period of misrule, the wartime marriages are, are now over. You have to return to what was in existence before, to your husband, to your wife. And it's why the husband in, in Brief Encounter says, you know, you've come back to me. Thank you. Uh, it, it's a sort of message to the country that we have to return to what was in existence before. Um, so, you know, that changed for women and for men. But so did sort of women's self-respect, I think. Women had a role uh, to play. They had a stake that they hadn't had before. And once again, after the, after the war, the government tried very, very hard to get women back into the home, away from the workplace, you know, to get to get women's clothes changed completely. Women wearing trousers. They had jobs to do. These were practical clothes. After the war, the government was desperately trying to bring in feminine fashions again. But, uh, you know, to a degree, all this succeeded. I mean, the, the marriage rate went up again after the war. The birth rate went up. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, the genie had been allowed out of the bottle. And it was only a matter of time before... Uh, you know, the 60s came along and, and shook things up again. So, um, you know, the, the wartime was a very, very interesting period, which which shook the country out of its accepted ways, its known um, modes of behavior. Uh, and uh, and it was always going to be very difficult to, to return it to where it had been before the war. Mm. Some of the other ways, some of the other new behaviors that the war allowed were kind of criminal behaviors. Um, what sort of things happened in, in that respect? Well, the war, if you think about it, particularly the Blitz, gave an enormous opportunity to criminals. You had, for one thing, you had you had the blackout, so you know people could do pretty much what they wanted um, in the darkness. You had bombed out houses, which you know presented these sudden opportunities to people uh, for, for for looting, for taking what they wanted, not just for looting, but but for recycling as well. Things were available. It was always a very fine line between criminal looting and and just taking things that nobody else was you know somebody ought to take uh, to, to to recycle you had the fact that the police uh, were very very stretched you had a lot of police were joining ups you had their place taken by by um, by uh, specials who, who weren't as experienced uh, and police also had all sorts of new roles they had to go to to, 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 to bomb incidents um, and and so they weren't necessarily around um, and you had the black market, you had all sorts of things opening up um, that you hadn't had before. And when there is opportunity, human beings take opportunity. That, you know, never mind that we're, we're in wartime. And, and, and then you also had the, had the fact that, you know, it was this sort of extreme time of danger, which sort of altered people's morality altered people's attitudes altered people's behavior so so you had you know you had uh, one case i found just trolling through you know lots of newspapers lots of files lots of um uh, different areas i found the the, the example of a, a man who who um had been a, a mortuary assistant had been doing it for, for 20 years had been you know had lived an impeccable life and then suddenly during the blitz he started stealing from the corpses that were coming in and he was sent to prison for quite a long time. Uh, but in his plea in mitigation, he said, he told the judge, he said, you, you, you know, people have got to understand, first of all, that, that you know, the, the state that these bodies are coming in every day is just horrendous. Uh, and also the, the, the danger that I felt myself in. And it turned my mind, is what he said. And it's, 
actually worth thinking about that. You know, this was this was a, 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 such a strange, dark. Uh, and gruesome time, as well as dangerous time. And somebody who had been doing a job for 20 years did suddenly, you know, go into a different mindset. As he says, his mind changed. And so, you know, the the, the, the Blitz really did alter the ways of behavior of people to good and to the bad. So you had, for all these different reasons, an explosion in crime, um, pardon the pun, but an explosion in the sort of criminal behaviors through opportunity, through people's attitudes, through fear, through all these different things. And then you also had lots of ordinary people becoming criminals because you had the wartime regulations that were brought in. And people, these were, these were strict liability crimes. So people became criminals without even knowing they were doing any wrong. So you had, you know, you had the, the, the vicar who rang his church bells and was sent to prison for it when he hadn't known that a regulation had been brought in. Uh, you, you know, driving a light blue car became a crime. You couldn't drive light cars, having a car radio, um, uh, using peregrine falcons. I mean, it, you know, it's almost limitless, the number of things that suddenly, you know, literally overnight became crimes and people were caught out by, quite apart from the well-known ones, you know, showing a light um, or, or uh, uh, food-related crimes. Um, and, you know, the, the, so the government started setting up, started trying to catch people, sent out sort of agent provocateurs to go into restaurants to try and order extra rations of bacon, rations of bacon, in order to be able to prosecute the, the, the cafe owner. Um, and, you know, it became a very difficult time in that sense. The people were finding themselves with criminal records who had never, ever, you know, contemplated breaking the law before. They were, they were, and, and, you know, there were people also who, you know, knowingly did it. I mean, people, people went onto the black market who would never ordinarily have, have, have dabbled in any sort of criminality. Um, and it became a sort of way, and again, that's another way that people just sort of started behaving outside of their normal boundaries, of their normal norms. So, in so many ways, criminal, you know, very much so, uh, the Blitz was this time of misrule, this time of extremes that, 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 that you know, it was very difficult after the water to sort of cram back into the bottle. But then, you know, I, I think this is really shown in one particular story, which I, I think is extraordinary. It's, it's, it's um, uh, a criminal called Wally Thompson, who was had been a criminal before the war. He'd actually received the cat of nine tails of Pentonville before the war. And he saw the Blitz as this extraordinary opportunity. And what he used to do was, with his gang, go out during the bombing um, to, 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 to try and steal uh, particularly safes from, from, from buildings and warehouses and offices. And he had joined the, the ARP, become an air raid warden, not so much out of any altruism, but because it gave him a uniform. And if you were wearing the air raid warden's uniform, then you could move around London pretty freely and, and do what you want, carrying safes, carrying goods, and people didn't tend to question you. So one night, at the height of the Blitz, he went out with his gang, three men, and they, 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 they stole a lorry, and they, they drove this lorry, this van, to, to London Bridge. They parked... Uh, near this warehouse that they targeted, and the bombs were coming down, and and uh, uh, the ACAC was going up, and and they went into this warehouse, uh, they stole in, and they started to manhandle the state the safe through the front door. And as they were doing this, the, the four of them, a bomb fell nearby and threw them all up into the air, threw the safe up into the air, um, and then they gathered themselves. They they realised they were all okay. Um, none of them were badly injured. So they started to, to run. They started to leave. But as they did, one of their number, who was known as Spider, looked up and he saw a little girl in a window. And the building was on fire. Little girl was in a third floor window. Spider was a cat burglar. His thing 
was scaling buildings, was getting up getting up walls. So without thinking, he immediately set up, up, up a drain pipe and up the wall to try and get this girl. He managed to get up there. He took her in his arms. This had taken a while. So by this time, a fire engine had arrived. The, the fire engine brought down Spider with the girl in his arms. And as he got down to the ground, there was a policeman there. The policeman congratulated him, said, you know, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. You've saved this girl. we can I take your details? Can I have your name, your address? I'd like to recommend you for, 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 an, for a bravery award. Now, the last thing that Spider wanted, or any of them wanted, was to be recommended publicly for an award. They didn't want any recognition. So, no, 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 no. He said no. And the four of them ran off. But what I think this shows you is how this, the intensity of this period made people behave in ways that they wouldn't expect themselves and others wouldn't expect of them. So, in... In the flash of a bomb, the spider went from stealing a safe to saving a life. And, you know, that I think that story, extreme it is, stands for this time of extremes and stands for the ways people were able to surprise themselves, surprise others, behave in extreme ways, behave uh, in, in almost unimaginable ways. And it's sort of a shorthand story to tell you what an extraordinary time this period was. Would we be surprised by the leniency and in some other cases, lack of leniency shown by the authorities to people who did stray outside their normal behaviour? Yes, I think I think we would. I think, you know, there, there wasn't always a consistency um, in the ways that the the, 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 the authorities behaved. So, it, um, for example, uh, homosexuals, gay men and women were able to behave as freely and as openly as they ever had before and as they would be able to for many years to come. The authorities were, were very much turning a blind eye to that kind of thing for a great extent because their, their, their attention was elsewhere. They, they had other things to worry about, um, although they clamped down after the war very, very harshly. Um, but then on the other hand, people who were behaving in, in ways that we look at now and 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 you know, consider very harmless. They they were they were clamping down very hard. So, for example, there was one man who was the head of a rescue gang, and they had been um, clearing out an area, and they were in an area that a damaged pub, and he he found a a bottle of vodka which just had a bit of alcohol at the bottom and he picked it up and he handed it around to his men to take a swig which we would look at and think well that's pretty well earned um and he was spotted by a policeman and uh, he was prosecuted for uh, for for looting um and he actually went to prison for that so you know it, it, there wasn't necessarily a consistency in the way the authorities reacted to things um but then of course they were making it up as they went along i mean the 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 the, the authorities were, were were very much taken by surprise by the Blitz. Um, they, uh, they 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 had were faced with all sorts of behaviours that they weren't expecting from people, and they didn't know how to react to it. But also, they were they were faced with with scenarios that they hadn't been expecting. They'd been expecting, for example, um, you know, a huge amount of death and lots and lots of people to be killed. Um, during the Blitz, but not necessarily as, as many damaged houses. So you had situations at the beginning of the Blitz, for example, in September, October in London, what became known as the Crisis of London, with all these homeless people with nowhere to go, no means of help. People had to go to seven or eight different authorities 
authorities to get money, to get to get all sorts of the different assistance that they needed. And when they did, they were often treated like Dickensian beggars, sort of begging for gin rather than people who had been bombed out of their house in a in an unprecedented kind of um, um, area bombing campaign. So, you know, one story I found was of a woman called Ida Rodway, who. 70 years old and, and had, uh, living in East London, had very devoted marriage to her husband. She and her husband were bombed out of their house. They'd been safe in the Anderson shelter, but they had, everything was gone. They, uh, they had nowhere to go. They had no money. Um, for several days, the, the husband was in hospital. Then they didn't know where to go. They went to the, the wife's sister. They slept on her floor. And Ida Rodway was terrified that the husband was, was almost completely blind. He was going senile. She did not know what to do, where to go. She wasn't getting any help. This was sort of mid-September. Um, and what she did was one morning, she went to get him his cup of tea. Uh, and she went into the kitchen and changed her mind. She came back with a meat cleaver and a knife. And she slit his throat. She she killed her husband and went off straight to the police and, and told them what she'd done. And she was actually put on trial at the Old Bailey where she was found uh, guilty but insane and sent to Broadmoor where she died in 1946. But when you read the trial papers, as I've done, you begin to think she wasn't insane at all. Was, you know, this, this is, in fact, she was behaving uh, to her mind, as 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 logically and as kindly as she possibly could, she was totally putting him out of his misery, and she had in her mind absolutely nowhere to turn, nothing to do. She was hopeless. She was helpless. Um, and and this was the kind of reaction on a. You know, this was again extreme, but it does reflect the sort of hopelessness and helplessness that people all across London, particularly in the east of London, but people were, were facing because they weren't getting the help they needed, uh, they were hoping for from the authorities. And so very quickly, the authorities sorted themselves out. They put a man called Henry Willink, who was a conservative MP, but out of necessity brought in all these progressive, what we would now think as socialist measures, into London um, and you know, immediately got rid of the poor law mentality, the, 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 the Dickensian beggar mentality, made one-stop shops where people could go and get all the help they needed based around the citizens' advice bureaus, made housing available quickly, social workers to take people to the housing when it was needed, sorted out the rest centres. All these different measures that Willink brought in, which once they were in place, became a sort of template for the welfare state and brought in, you know, by... Uh, a conservative MP, just as this period saw the first stirrings of the Education Act, which was being thought up by a Rab Butler, a conservative, um, uh, and all these different progressive measures, which were coming into place at this point out of a sense of necessity. The National Health Service, you know, was coming. You know, the, 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 this period was very much putting that in. You know, the, 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 the first plan for for National Health Service were, were put in place again at this time. Um, so this was a very, very formative period from the from from, from the government's point of view, um, uh, and uh, it, it was all happening in a, in a sort of um, out of necessity, really. And it changed society in a long term, long lasting way as well, didn't it? I think it did. I think you know everything that we we have now, the, the, the sort of political framework in Britain that we have now. I think you know a lot of it really was put into place in this crucible period, as I say, out of necessity. Um, and you know whether whether we like it, whether we loathe it, whatever. You know we owe a great deal to this period, which I'm not sure we've ever truly recognised. 
If you could somehow travel back to this period, this place and this time, and ask someone a question, what would you ask? I suppose, as as a historian, I would I would try and ask them, find out from them how they really were behaving, how they really were feeling, how they were relating to each other and to, to, to the period, what they imagined the future would hold, what they were hoping for from the future, how the period was changing their attitudes, and how they had expect how they thought they would behave compared with how they really were behaving. I would try, I would, you know, in a way, I would ask them the same sort of questions I ask people now, but I would probably get uh, not a truer answer, not in the sense that anyone is lying to me now, but, you know, I would get, I would get an answer from, from, the, from the heat of the crucible rather than at, at 75 years remove where people have had time to create their own narratives. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would, I would sort of be a, a bit of a, a pain in the neck, I think, going around asking people questions that they had no interest in answering because they were just trying to survive and get through. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, if you'd like this book to change how people view the Blitz, how how would you like it to do that? I think I'd like them to realise that it was a much more nuanced, interesting, um, complex period than 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 they necessarily um, would have thought before. I I don't want them to, to to sort of settle for for easy answers, for easy attitudes, easy. Um, uh, impressions of the past. I'd, I'd like them to see it as a uh, as a really complicated, messy time where, yes, it was extreme. Yes, it was intense. Yes, it made people behave in different ways. But those different ways were very, very different depending on the type of blitz you had. If you were, you know, if you were hurt during the bombing, if people you knew, knew were killed, you had one kind of blitz. Um, if you were a young child, taken up in the excitement you had another kind of blitz if you were you know all these different attitudes you know if you're if you're if your relationships with your neighbors change with your family change because of it um you were brought closer to other people then you had a different kind of blitz you know i want people to get rid of the easy answers and start looking at the complexity of life and to realize that you know people uh, expectations change attitudes change but people themselves um, don't really change. So that's what that's what I'd really like people to. I mean, there's this one one story. I mean, I, I remember. Do you remember the the Twitter joke trial a few years ago, um, where where somebody was, you know, he put up a tweet about um, uh, bombing Nottingham Airport because he, he his flight had been cancelled. It was clearly a joke, and and he was prosecuted under this new crime. Well, I remember reading an article um, in one of the newspapers saying that, you know. We, we we become soft and back during the war, um, you know, when 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 we were uh, keeping calm and carrying on, you know, we, 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 we wouldn't have prosecuted. It would have been, you know, we would have been much tougher about this kind of thing and, and it would never have happened. And then going through a local newspaper in Oxford, I found an absolutely analogous case. I found a man when they, they, they brought in the regulation, one of these regulations they brought in. Um, uh, of um, um, causing alarm and despondency, you could be convicted of, uh, uh, in a magistrate's court of causing alarm and despondency if you um, made a, made a statement that that, that 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 affected people, affected someone. So um, this man had he'd been an electricity meter reader. He'd gone into a house. And he'd started making jokes as 
probably millions of people around the country were making about the Nazis, about the Nazis coming in, about Ribbentrop being made king if the Nazis came here, about all sorts of things like that. You know, they weren't very funny jokes, but nor was, you know, I'm going to blow up Nottingham Airport. It was, it was a sort of reaction to the time. But the man was making these jokes to the wrong audience. The woman reported him to the police saying it was a queer way for an English person to be speaking. And he found himself uh, on trial at, at um, Oxford uh, Police Court. And the, the, the bench clearly couldn't decide. They adjourned for a week and they came back with a majority vote. They found him guilty. And they find him for causing alarm or despondency, um, alarm and despondency. And I just thought, you know, here somebody had rather lazily in the newspaper written, you know, we were, let's go back to the old days when we were tougher. And here's a case, an absolutely analogous case where precisely, not precisely, but pretty much the same thing had happened. So we've got to be careful about making lazy judgments about the past. It was a complicated time, in many ways more like our own time than than, than we would even imagine, because people are people, uh, and, and, and that will never change. Um, and so what I would like people to understand is, is it was a fascinating time. It was the crux of so much that we now take for granted in society, politically, socially, um, morally, uh, in terms of expectations. But it was, above all, a time of complex um, uh, reactions and, 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 and lots of different attitudes to one really difficult time. And we should avoid holding it up as some kind of symbol of anything in particular. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we to, not necessarily. I mean, we, we don't have to, 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 to run a mile from seeing it as a time of, you know, there was a huge amount of, of, of genuine bravery, genuine stoicism. You know, people really did come together, as I say, blitz spirit, wasn't I, I'm quite clear now on having 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 studied it closely. Blitz spirit wasn't a myth, but it also wasn't the whole story. What was the thing that surprised you most? Finally, surprised me most. Ah, um, I don't think there was one thing particularly. Uh, it was a lot of the different stories I found. You know, when I found something new, it would excite me. So, you know, from. For example, the the you know the 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 eighteen nineteen year old boy at, at, at University College Oxford who went mad with a Lee Enfield rifle and started shooting fellow students in the quad. You know, we think of this as a modern, you know, American campus thing that the Columbine shootings, the, the 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 and 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 here it was happening in in nineteen forty. Um, in 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 England, in 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 Oxford, you, you know, I found a lot of gun crime was taking place. I mean, that was very interesting to me. You know, people had guns. The, the Home Guard had guns. The, the troops were coming home on leave. They were carrying their guns. And when people had guns, when the country had guns, you know, people, most usually young men, used them. You know, just like it happens in America now. So, you know, um, a, a, a Canadian military policeman. Um, held up a pub in Covent Garden, shot dead the barman. Um, a, a young soldier came home on leave, went into a shelter, found his girlfriend lying on a mattress in the arms of another man, opened fire. You know, when you put excitable young, give excitable young men guns, they they will use them. And so, so we went through our own period um, uh, of high gun crime, a bit like you know, is always in the news in America. So that surprised me. Um, the oil industry and 
in uh, Sherwood Forest surprised me very much. The importance of this period to to, to, to modern Britain, as I said, the social and, and, and political makeup of modern Britain, I think that surprised me because people have never really, you know, looked at how closely we, we, we owe our, our, our social and political um, uh, uh, framework to to this very short period. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think the number of foreigners in the country and the way the foreigners were treated, um, I think, I think that surprised me. There were so many stories that just aren't told that when you delve into the records, delve into the, the archives and, and, and speak to people, you find really quite a different story to the one you thought you knew. And that's, that's what this book is about, trying to paint a very different story um, to the one people thought they knew. That was Joshua Levine. Joshua's book, The Secret History of the Blitz, is out now published by Simon & Schuster. And as I mentioned earlier, Joshua has written a piece for the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is still in the shops for a few more days. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Anne of Cleves, the French Terror, and the secrets to being a successful monarch. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agents and digitally. And we're also continuing our trial, whereby you can listen to the articles in the magazine. These audio versions can be found in our iPad and iPhone editions and on the website historyextra.com forward slash September audio. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about Ancient Rome with Tom Holland and Amanda Foreman will be discussing her new TV series on the history of women. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>